you have to be comfortable with complexity if you're going to work in Africa. If you're serious about changing things, you first have to understand why they are the way they are. We love complexity and we, we enjoy taking complexity and making it simple. Think about how difficult it is to change your own habits. Now expand that to an entire continent. This is the challenge faced by African e-commerce company Jumia. How do you change hundreds of years of established precedent in how people buy and sell? In many ways, they've cracked the code and they've done it differently than you might expect. But if you ask them, they've barely scratched the surface. Welcome to Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the show where Africa and India's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty and global experts on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. We've got a bit of a departure from our usual today. This is the edited version of a live event with accomplished businesswoman, Juliet Anama. Juliet is the chairwoman of Jumia Nigeria and chief sustainability officer of the Jumia Group. We spoke to her as part of the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series, which, as you'll hear, included real-time questions submitted by viewers. Together, we explored what Jumia has done to convince Africans to adopt e-commerce, how they're revolutionizing informal markets, and how much more there still is to accomplish. I wanted to start by getting to know Jumia and the problems it's trying to solve. Jumia is um, an e-commerce platform, the largest e-commerce platform in, in Africa. And we started in 2012. And we started with a mission, very simple mission, that we could improve lives with the power of the internet on, on the continent. We are based in about 11 countries. And the 11 countries where we're based in actually cover 70% of Africa's GDP and about 500, over 500 million internet users. So the question is, like you said, what's the problem we're trying to solve? If you're a seller in Africa many years ago, you only had two options on how you're going to retail your products to consumers. Either you had to pay a very expensive high street real estate prices for a modern retail shop, or you had no other alternative but to operate in the open market, very informal open market. It's hot, it has no amenities or utilities, and it's overcrowded. Those were the only options you had, especially if you were a small, medium enterprise just uh, trying to get by. So Jumia solves that problem for host of millions of SMEs and sellers and merchants on the continent because you don't have to register on Jumia platform. Or you don't have upfront capital expenditure in terms of putting up retail space, uh, literally minutes once you're registered and gone through the training for selling online on Jumia, you can start your business. So that's a huge part of the problem. The second part of the problem, of course, was a logistics problem. So the first one was a distribution problem. And even just staying on the distribution one, if you were a consumer, by the time you finally buy the product, chances are that the markups from the very long distribution chain from manufacturer to bulk breaker to wholesaler and finally to retailer and the neighborhood shop where you buy the item, you could be paying significantly more than you should as, as a consumer. So one was a distribution problem from the consumer's perspective and from a seller's perspective. So we're bringing millions of consumers to 
interact and transact with sellers directly with no intermediaries or any other agent, agents in between. The second part of it is the logistics part of it. We're also solving a logistics problem by integrating multiple logistics partners into one single integrated logistics. It used to be called in my old Accenture days as a 4PL, but what it is is that you're using technology to integrate different asset owners and then using Jumia's technology to also be the, you know, manage the data and how they operate. So Jumia doesn't own the logistics supply chain, but it has a platform that allows you to get the right players in there when, when you need them, where you need them. Exactly. So it's an asset light model. You have people who have the assets. You have people who have tricycles and vans and so on. But what was lacking was always the technology to integrate that together and to use the data to make you know, quality decisions of where do you deliver, what timeline is it you know, required, and so on and so forth. At what point does Jumia decide we should build this in-house versus we should partner? And is that conversation ongoing? Or is, I mean, maybe that's a trade secret, but I'm just curious to know. You have to be comfortable with complexity if you're going to work in Africa. Okay. <laughs> we love complexity. And we, we enjoy taking complexity and making it simple. So like I said earlier, the problem is not assets. The problem is not people who have warehouses and hubs. All of that exists. You have people who have warehouses. We have people who have hubs. We have people who have 10 trucks or some people who have five tricycles. We have all of those assets that exist. So replicating on the asset side is not creating value. The real asset that then drives e-commerce is the engine, which is really the technology. Okay, so how do you know which day of the week uh, you can make certain deliveries? What is the speed of delivery? How should you do your routing so that you're more fuel efficient? You also reduce distance traveled. All of those are relevant information you cannot get through just owning the assets. You get that through owning the technology that puts it all together. And the value is the fact that all those players are utilizing your technology. So you have the delivery agents who have your delivery app on their mobile phone. You've got the third-party logistics players who are using your hub management system in their businesses. This philosophy to connect what already exists rather than start from scratch extends beyond logistics. Jumia works with third-party companies to facilitate payments and since their apps are already familiar to the customer, adoption is relatively seamless. And what about payments? I mean, I'm really curious because I love this transformation. I want to get back to the transformation for the informal sector that's implied in everything you just said. But what about payments? So payments was another part of it because um, I still remember about 2015, just not too long ago, if a consumer made a purchase on Jumia and we relied on just payment through a debit card or a credit card and had to clear on the back end with a bank, sometimes if there was a return, it could take two weeks because, of course, the, you know, the banks at the time, e-commerce was not really something that they were really focused on. So we had to develop our own payment system, again, using the same principle of integrating different payment methods that a consumer could have into a seamless platform that will allow us to clear whether it was credit card or debit card or mobile money or bank transfer, whatever 
payment method that the consumer had, we could also integrate it on that network. So that's the third component. And that's why those are the three parts of our ecosystem. I want to dig down a little bit more into the payments piece. I'm going straight into the weeds because yeah, that's where no. I love to be. But <laughs> are you using third-party payment providers? I mean, there's so many startups now in this space, the fintech space in Nigeria. There's a lot of venture capital flowing in. I mean, I've lost track of how many of them are. Are you doing your own thing or you're working with all of these third-party providers? We are agnostic. So we're working with all, all third parties, yeah. And especially given how large the market is, the real value you bring to consumers is not limiting them to your own solution. It's actually giving them a platform through which they could use whatever payment methodology that they have. E-commerce is relatively new in Africa, and platforms like Jamia are transforming the informal market. One example, access to information. It's huge. I mean, because look at the number of sellers on, in Africa who are small, uh, medium enterprises in the informal market. And then when they get onto Jumia, look at the, the kinds of information that is available to them. Suddenly they know, for example, what which ones of their items are the fastest moving, which are what price points, which particular color, if you're in fashion, if you're a fashion seller on Jumia, you suddenly know whether it's the blue shirt or the red shirt that actually sells better than the other SKUs that you have. That's very powerful information. They get information in terms of even the placement of the products, the product information which they put up on site. They get information on their seller score and all that. So really formalizing informal trade is what it is a huge, huge benefit that an e-commerce platform like Jumia is bringing to, to the sellers in, in Africa. So that's a huge part. That's a really big transition from where they were before. So that, I love that. That's the data analytics piece, which is for some of them, I think probably data they've never had or they had intuitively or they had it on paper and pen. Can you tell how many of your sellers are new sellers? I mean, in other words, that they would not be in a marketplace if it wasn't online. Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we ran a survey recently and we have sellers in between 30% to 40% of our sellers who say, look, you know, they started their business exclusively on Jumia, right? And some sellers start their businesses on Jumia. Some sellers came to Jumia to expand their businesses. But what I actually find extremely interesting is the number of women sellers that we have on Jumia. So we have, at least in Nigeria and Kenya, which are key markets, about 51% of our sellers are actually women. And why do women find it attractive? It's a gender agnostic environment. You could be a fashion seller, you could be an electronic seller, and you know you don't have a. It's not a physical market where someone can make those kinds of gender related decisions or whether I want to buy an electronic product from a from a woman or not. So that is giving them access to different categories that they could perform in. Two, it is also giving women flexibility to be able to manage their homes and at the same time run a business of their own. Then third component that women say they really appreciate uh, selling on Jumia, it's, um, it's the training. Training on digital marketing, training on how to sell online, training on even how to read your account statements. Just those basic kinds of training, the importance for an SME just cannot be overemphasized. 
I love that point. You know, we're always trying to get more women CEOs into our program. And we did commission a study to look at what are some of the barriers to entry for women entrepreneurs across the African continent. And you just hit a bunch of them. Access to capital. Like if you want to open a storefront, you're, it's going to be super hard to find that $50,000 or $100,000 loan. The second is access to networks. Women traditionally, in not just in Africa, but across the world, have trouble accessing networks. And then the third is access to technology. And I include training under technology, right? That is the most basic technology. You're not getting the same opportunity. So those are really powerful elements of the platform. We've talked in recent weeks about how technology-based lenders are changing the landscape for SME finance in Africa. Jamia has their own credit platform called Jamia Lending. I wanted to know how they approach lending differently. So Jumia Lending connects um, sellers on our platform, leveraging their transaction uh, data, transaction history, to then find uh, working capital loans through other financial services providers who, who, who are partners to Jumia. So we don't lend off our balance sheet. We do the connection to financial services providers. It makes total sense to me because in interviewing a number of fintech CEOs for my podcast, you know, they're all using algorithms and machine learning as alternative sources of data for assessing creditworthiness. And the number one thing they use for little like working capital loans for trading companies and retailers is what's your repayment history? And it's not coming from banks because banks aren't doing $500 loans, right? So, but the other one would be, what's your revenue history, right? So if you can show that from Jumia, hey, I'm, this is my monthly revenue. That's hugely valuable to those fintech algorithms because uh, that's the data they need. That's interesting. Let's talk about COVID for a second. How important was COVID and the lockdowns a determining factor in the growth of e-commerce? Is it just a a blip in an otherwise rapidly growing bow wave or or was it determinative in your growth? I think it was a blip in Africa. Look at it in the U.S. here. The U.S. government more or less bankrolled retail during COVID, right? So put money in people's accounts and you're sitting at home. What are you going to do? You're going to have, you have to spend the money online, right? So the Fed bankrolled <laughs> retail during the pandemic. You don't have that equivalent in other areas like Africa. And in some cases, we, we had intermittent lockdowns and movement restrictions. So it wasn't such a big factor in terms of growth of e-commerce. Rather, e-commerce had, had been on a trajectory, given the fact that you have over 500 million internet users. Africa is also a mobile-first environment. Right. So it's almost like Africans have been hungry to do more with their mobile phones. And e-commerce just happened to be one of those areas. If there's any area where I think there was a lot more awareness uh, during COVID about the potential of e-commerce, it's in the public policy and public agency environment where they suddenly realized that uh, this is something that can actually be leveraged in a situation like a, a pandemic and, um, and has great potential for jobs and great potentials for economic development as well. Juliet's transition from CEO to chairwoman of the Jamia Group has necessitated a shift in focus from the company's present to its future how Jamia will fit in the landscape of African commerce and how to sustain the business model long-term. That means engaging with the wider ecosystem, including government. In speaking with a lot of tech-enabled companies, fintech, medtech, health tech, the observation is that 
we recognize that there's a role for regulation to protect consumers. The problem is when the regulatory authorities are not at the cutting edge of what's happening. So the regulations themselves, even if they come from a place of good intention, they may actually be a, a hindrance or a barrier to growth. And so what's needed is a dialogue. And so my question to you is, is there a group of companies and people like yourself who are collaborating to work with regulators to say, let's get this right together? Definitely. So just on the, on the context, people say that, that you know, regulators, they're not on the same plane, but it's our responsibility as private sector to educate. And a lot of my work in the past year and so has been that education, providing information to say, look, this is, this is what we're doing. Uh, to a large extent, we've actually spent more time just explaining this is what we're doing. This is, this is what a marketplace model looks like. These are the responsibilities of the platform versus the seller, you know, versus the consumer and all that. So I think it's our responsibility as private sector to do it. And that's what we've been doing. Okay. In some of our markets, also, we've, we've formed coalitions with like-minded private sector companies in Nigeria. We have uh, the e-commerce group within the Lagos Chamber of Commerce. I am actually the, the first chairwoman of, of that council. In Kenya, we have a private sector alliance and uh, we have an e-commerce uh, sector within the alliance. So all of those are opportunities to engage with, with regulators. And it's always to the interest of private sector to engage early that way you can provide the necessary information and education and dialogue because they want to do the right thing. They just want to be well-informed in taking the right decision. Sometimes you provide parallels from other markets. You can show what's going on in the U.S. or China and um, you know how the African environment is different and, and you make your, your recommendation and they listen. You are responsible for sustainability for the group what does that mean for Jumia? And what are some of the key initiatives that you're focused on or the organization is focused on in the sustainability space? The first thing for us is actually a very clear validation that our mission itself is sustainable. We don't have to invent some new projects to go after. I mean, it doesn't mean, of course, we would have to operate in a sustainable manner, reducing in terms of our shipments, reducing use of packaging materials and all that. So all of those are very important hygiene factors, which we build into our day-to-day -day operation. But just realizing that our mission, which is about, in the end, when you look at it, it's about reducing inequality, is so critical and is a big part of how we create value and how we create sustainable improvement and quality of lives on, on the continent. And asking ourselves, what, what more can we do uh, with that mission? And second part of it is that we have a full ecosystem of many partners that working together can actually create more value for the communities that we live in than just Jumia itself. We have sellers, we have third-party logistics partners, we have brands who work with us. So that's a full ecosystem that if we deploy, can actually do a lot more for sustainability. So that's our focus and that's our area of attention for this first year. I mean, this is the first year that we're actually putting together our practices, what we're doing, and we would have a report, our first report next year. A very practical example is how many sellers on Jumia are classified as SMEs? 
How many sellers on Jumia have been able to get access to working capital loans to grow their businesses? How many sellers on Jumia are women? How many of them have utilized the training facilities that we provide? How many of them have utilized the loans to be able to grow their businesses? Those are huge, huge areas of sustainability that we, we haven't even scratched all of it, right? Let's, let's utilize what we have first. And then uh, there are all the levers at which we can also concentrate on. So those are some examples for you there. There's a great question here. I'm going to jump in on this one because this is actually a direction I wanted to go. How does Jamia evaluate markets for potential entry? And do you ever decide markets are no longer viable? The person who's asking this question mentions that Jamia pulled out of Cameroon. I want to tack on my own question to that. You mentioned you're in 11 countries, 500 million people, and accounting for some enormous percentage of the total GDP on the continent. Can you go to this question and talk a little bit about the barriers to regional expansion and what you look for when you pick a new country to enter? The questioner was actually right. Yeah, we had to pull out of Cameroon. Remember, there was a time when Cameroon, the internet was shut down for almost a whole year. Okay. So these are very important uh, factors that we look at. We look at the, the state of the economy. We look at beyond GDP, beyond uh, economic factors, we're also looking at readiness for an internet-based business like ours. So those are very important nuances that we consider in terms of uh, looking at ex- expansion. Uh, for now, we're, we're deepening our footprints within the countries that we are in, maybe in the future, but def- certainly for this year, we're, we're really concentrating on those 11 countries where we're currently in. All said and done, uh, we are the largest e-commerce platform on the continent, but we're also in a continent where e-commerce and I would say all of modern trade is probably still within the ranks of 2 to 5% of total retail. So you still have a huge upside, huge, huge upside. So before you start tinkering with other kinds of categories and you know new verticals and so on, just even that alone is a significant area to to focus on and that's and that's what our focus is and and i think the other thing we are focusing on as well is really the shift that consumers have made from using e-commerce coming to jumia to buy the electronics they wanted to buy products of high value because they could get it at a good price on jumia and they could get a quality assurance and and all of that to the everyday products so people want to buy food people want to buy essential items home cleaning agents, beauty and perfumes, consumables, basically. That's a huge shift. And that's where we are also deepening our presence in. I want to go to your, the competitive landscape in a second, but I want to pause and talk about consumables. Because I mean, one of the things that makes consumables possible here in the United States is that you can get it tomorrow, right? You can get your vegetables. They're still fresh. They're maybe even cold packed, right? You, you need a toilet roll. You need cleaning products, whatever it is. Is that a big deal? Is that important to your consumers that they get something really fast or not? Not yet. Yeah, there's always a trade-off. Sometimes it's your, it's the consumer's living environment that flows into their expectations. Okay. So because in the States, right next to the corner, there's either a Kroger or there's a Target or there's a Wegmans or any other brand, uh, you know, that you can pop into and buy. So that flows into consumer expectations of 
you know, when do I want it? I want it like in 10 minutes. Of course, you can use Instacart as well and you, you get the product very quickly. In our environment, it's slightly different. Uh, consumers are making trade-offs and for them, it probably the pricing is more important. So I got the perfect question here for you that, that just follows on this. As part of your impact goals, does Jamia have any special role in supporting or facilitating local manufacturing in the countries where you operate? We work very closely with brands. So we have several brands that are listed on Jumia. And um, we see an increasing interest from brands to be on Jumia for many reasons. Uh, one being, of course, that it gives an opportunity for them to go direct to the consumer through Jumia as a platform. Two, it gives them very useful consumer insight. And a lot of that consumer insight is in terms of packaging, in terms of product specifications. All of that is useful for a manufacturer in development and product development and production. So the answer is yes, uh, local manufacturers find being on Jumia extremely useful for their demand planning and, and production. Let's pivot a little bit to the competitive landscape. Who are your competitors? Is it Kong.com or take a lot, you know, other e-commerce companies that are in the continent, or is Amazon a threat from afar? I think when, when you look at it at the end of the day, competition is is more the the informal market, right? Because all of that put together, you've just talked about whether it is Konga or Tickalot or any other platform or modern uh, brick and mortar retail and so on and so forth. All of that, like I said earlier, is just two to five percent max. The real uh, competition is the info is the informal market, and and uh, we are every day working to bring more and more sellers to the platform and bring more brands to the platform, excite more consumers. Where we're currently having our Black Friday campaign on, it usually is a very exciting period for consumers. I had no idea that existed on your platform. Oh, we were the first to launch it in Africa in 2014. <laughs> Around here, that's like that's when I try to go for a hike in the woods because it's too mad <laughs> everywhere else. Let me ask a bit more about you know where does Jamia look for its its vision? Do you look more to the east, you know, Chinese e-commerce e e like Taobao or JD or Douyin, or do you look more to Western models as you think through your growth strategy? I would say we're much closer to the Asian Alibaba model because we're more of a marketplace. But then there are structural differences between Africa and China. Some of the infrastructural developments, uh, even things like uh, you know having a national postal system and driving down the cost of postal services, some of those things which uh, Taobao, for example, leapfrogged in developing uh, in China, we don't have those in Africa. So we look more at our consumers, I would say, in terms of what are the expectations, what are their needs, what's evolving for them in the market, what's critical. Brands have begun selling directly through social media, cutting out the middleman. I asked Juliet how social commerce factors into Jamia's future plans. We view social commerce as complementary to some respects in the sense that there's a lot of uh, social commerce on WhatsApp and uh, Instagram, but it's also exposed some of the challenges of social commerce in terms of protection of consumers. Sometimes you order something and it doesn't get delivered and you don't have a system whereby you can trust in um, 
in the returns process, you can test in the quality assurance and, and so on. Every time we pull our consumers, they tell us that one of the things they really, really love on Jumia is they don't want to deal with a seller. They don't care who the seller is. Okay. I mean, that, and that's I'm speaking figuratively. The person they have a relationship with is Jumia. So if something goes wrong, they want to know that it's Jumia they're dealing with. We, we always talk about the fact that when you're ordering online, that many things we provide, uh, the item has probably been QC'd, it's been, you can see the seller score, so you can make decisions between multiple options, which seller to go with, payments and all of that. So there's a whole lot that's riding on just completing a purchase online that consumers like the option of having someone, the intermediary, the platform that is taking some of those responsibilities for them. One of the biggest hurdles for any e-commerce company is building trust that if I give you my money, you'll send the product. This is especially true in markets where those online buying habits haven't been well established. I asked Juliet, what has Jumia done to create trust with buyers and sellers? For any marketplace, of course, you would have issues sometimes with sellers and so on and so forth. But like you mentioned, we do have recourse mechanisms uh, we have penalties. We score sellers by many things, by speed of delivery, by the quality of the item, by the return rate of the items that they sell on the platform. So many things are built into it. And of course, we have certain items which must be QC'd. Uh, we have uh, manufacturer warranties. Uh, we offer everything that you can think of from a recourse perspective. And for some of our consumers also, depending on the type of item and the specific consumer's behavior on our platform, sometimes a consumer wants to return something and we refund immediately, even before the item is retrieved. Okay. So there are many things we've built into uh, creating an environment that consumers can trust and feel comfortable to shop online. We've heard a lot about what Jumia has done to change the commerce paradigm in Africa. And as we wrapped up our conversation, I asked Juliet how much she thought e-commerce would actually drive development across the continent. I mean, it's already contributing to development on the continent. There was a BCG report that talked about the fact that, look, you know, marketplaces like Jumia by 2025 could be contributing almost 3 million jobs on the continent. So in terms of you're talking about jobs, that's one. Number two, you're talking about formalizing informal uh, retail, like you mentioned, uh, you're also recognized as another area, which is the cross-border trade within Africa itself. So those are many pathways and many areas in which uh, e-commerce and companies like Jumia can make significant um, contribution to the continent. We tend to think of these shifts as inevitable, a byproduct of technological advances. But I think Jumia shows how much careful thought and effort has to go into solving a host of problems in traditional, largely informal markets. Their commitment to using existing assets and working with partners who are already on the ground has eased adoption. Trust was built with tools for buyer recourse and access to information for sellers. And collaborative work with regulators will help solidify their standing as they create their own paradigm for commerce on the continent. But Jumia is not alone. Although the potential Pan-African market is huge, there are many new and some established players competing aggressively for it. I do wish Jumia all the best as they seek to scale. Thanks to Juliet Anama of the Jumia Group and to Luke Sikora and the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series for organizing this conversation. If you'd like to check out the full talk, you can go to the Stanford eCorner YouTube page 
or follow the link in our show notes. Women in the workplace face unique challenges and opportunities. That's why I'm excited to introduce two programs designed for women leaders like you, offered by Stanford GSB Executive Education and led by Maggie Neal and Deborah Grunfeld. High Potential Women Leaders is a live online program, and the Executive Program in Women's Leadership is a one-week on-campus program. Both equip you with the tools and mindset to fundamentally change the way you lead. Visit StanfordGSBWomen.com to learn more. I'm also excited to share with you that Season 2 of the Grit and Growth podcast will feature interviews with both Maggie Neal and Deborah Grunfeld. This has been Grit and Growth with Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps us to share the stories of these incredible entrepreneurs with as many people as possible. To learn how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs throughout Africa and South Asia, head over to the Stanford Seed website at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. Lori Fuller researched and developed content for this episode with additional research by Jeff Prickett. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves. With writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.